Now, though, let's get up and go. Let's find out what gets people up and going. Today's guest is Mandisa Mashekho, EFF Gauteng Chairperson, party leader in the Gauteng Legislature. And uh, from what I understand, the only female leader, uh, i got to get this right, the only woman provincial leader in the party. Let's chat to her. Mandisa, thanks very much for joining us so early. Thank you very much, John, for waking me up at the crack of dawn. <laughs> it's, it's not even dawn yet. I look out the window, it is still like midnight out there, I tell you what. <laughs> yes, exactly. What time do you normally wake up? This is normally the time I start getting up. Sure. Even though I might not be, you know, literally out of bed, but I usually, my average day, either check emails at the time of the morning, between three and five in the morning, check yeah. emails. If I didn't check them late at night, otherwise, if you don't do that, you mm. end up with um, a flood of emails that have not been answered to. And in politics, it's virtually, you know, it's a sin not to respond to your constituencies. Um, sometimes you get a couple of stalkers, but um, <laughs> in majority of the cases, it's um, genuine. Um, you know, communication with genuine concerns or queries or even membership queries. Oh. And of course, lately we've been getting a lot of international um, sort of, if I can call them constituencies, who are either congratulating the EFF or, you know, um, Pan-Africanist activists as well from the diaspora. A lot of them, I'm not sure why they end up emailing me, but it seems like my number is on the internet and right. my email address. And so, yeah, that's my average morning. <laughs> so, so you lie in bed, what, what do you got, a tablet or a phone, and you do that, or do yes. you bring the laptop up? Laptop up? Yes, yes. See, that's a yes. good way to start the day. Are you a coffee or tea lady? <laughs> tea. Uh, tea, all right. Do, do you have to go and make that yourself, or have you got somebody to bring you tea in bed? I always want somebody to bring me tea no, in bed. No, I make it myself. I can't afford I can't afford any position. I can't afford to hire someone to make for me. I can hardly afford a full-time helper. Someone who helps me at least two days a week. Yeah, we, we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, but all I want is somebody to make me coffee in bed. Can we just make you that know, happen, please? If we can get a robot to do that, then I can afford a robot to do that. Of course, I'll get a robot to do that. Uh, okay, so that what what gets you up and going? Obviously, the emails, you, you kind of, you have to, but what is what is the passion? Look, I used to be a roadrunner. I think that's something maybe a lot of people don't know about me, except family and close friends. I used to be a roadrunner, and I used to love that a lot. I mean, I couldn't do without it. Now I can't because I've had back operations, not back operations, abdominal operations. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so it's become not impossible, but I'm not really allowed to exert that much pressure on myself. That's what gets me going is basically the work <laughs> at the moment. I had um, started my MBA studies as well, yeah. but I, I've since put that on hold yeah. because the election um, got in the way. And of course, we had some other problems with uh, Gibbs University because, yeah, yeah. let me just put it this way. They are a typical South African university with a typical mentality of refusing to you know, treat people with uh, necessary humanity that is needed. So, yeah, I've had to put that on hold, but of course I'm going to pursue it and continue um, with those studies as soon as I'm able to get back onto the next module. But what gets me going is really the workload, eh? Mm. I mean, the demands 
from um, communities is, is very high. Or, you know, it's a misnomer to think that if you're a chairperson or leading a party, yeah. all you do is, you know, of course you attend a lot of meetings. There's a lot of meetings in the legislature, a lot of meetings in the party. Um, but mostly I, well, let me speak for myself, because they're all different human beings. I have a lot of constituency responsibilities. Uh, people make a lot of demands on you. I tend to find that the more you do, sort of the more you put yourself out there, um, the more people also sort of perhaps, you know, talk to each other and say, no, you can actually harass this one. She's easier to get to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At, is the EFF, I imagine it's still quite a small party. You don't have a whole lot of people around you to help you. It's almost sort of still very one-on-one, isn't it? Very much. Um, well, I'm lacking the sense that in the uh, caucus office, we have about four staff members full time, and then we have another small number. Of course, we do welcome volunteers because we're a political organization, we're a non-profit, we're a, a, you know, a, a non-profit entity, so we, we do welcome volunteers, but unfortunately those volunteers have to be members of the EFF uh, because of the nature of the work we do. Um, but yeah, I do have a couple of people who assist, and in fact, there are a lot of people who do also volunteer to do certain things. It's just in the nature of the work that we do, you have to have reliable, you know, reliability, trust, is probably top on the ranks, um, and so even if people offer to help you with anything, you, you can't go around being naive and trusting everybody who sure. offers to volunteer. But yeah, we do have some help. At the head office level, we do have staff. The mm-hmm. head office has quite a lot of staff. So at provincial level, we still need to beef up, um, especially you know in terms of capabilities, because you still need the same level of competence, ability, and efficiency. In fact, I think even more in the EFF uh, that you, you would expect from any corporation or private entity or even government um you know, uh, department or, or government-owned company. So, you know, because we do a lot of work and communities expect a lot out of us. Our constituencies are extremely demanding. And so it's important to have competent people. But, yeah, we do have a few people to assist us. We're not completely alone. I just happen to be a bit of a control freak, so sometimes, <laughs> I, <believe. laughs> sometimes I think it's better if I do it myself. But, of course, I've learned, and we all know, yeah. that that is not the most efficient way to get things done. But, yeah, we do have help. Also at the National Assembly, we have a few researchers that I tend to, I think, probably out of all the chairpersons in the EFS, I'm probably the one that, you know, <laughs> you reaches out to them a lot because I just feel, well, there are resources available. So I make use of every possible available resource. Mm. Uh, would you qualify, Mandisa, yourself as a young person in Parliament? The reason I ask is, where that's our question today, is how important is it to have a young person in Parliament? Would you say you're a young political leader? No, I'm 46 in August. I'm not young. Is that not young? <laughs> Mangasutu <laughs> no. Botelezi is t- double your age. Look, we have, um, I'm trying to think of the ages of, of, of our current MPL. There are 11 of us now in the legislature. Yeah. And uh, we, I think the young, I'm not sure how old she is, but we do have one of the new MPLs who's young. Maybe she's in her 30s, I have not checked yet. But yeah, we do have, we had even in the previous um, term also someone who was 
quite young mm. as well. I would think compared to the average ages on the other party benches, I would definitely qualify as young, maybe <laughs> also in terms of uh, being a provincial leader. Right. Um, I was elected when last year. Uh, I was elected deputy chair in 2014. At the time, I was only 40, I think, 39 or 40. So I would imagine uh, if you compare the average age of an NPL in South Africa, <laughs> I would classify as young, but then the commander-in-chief and the deputy president and uh, yeah, young, hey. are younger yeah. than me. That's right. I forgot about so, that. Yeah. So I don't think I'm really that young, actually. <laughs> I, you know, um, even even for even when, when you do compare between average ANC MP, mm. although it looks like the ANC this year has made a greater effort to bring in young people from their side. So yeah, not that I want to you know trump their card, but nonetheless, it does look like they tried shame. Uh, for what it's worth. <laughs> we're, all, sure. we're all trying to make Maybe South Africa better. <laughs> we're all trying to make South Africa better. Let's leave it at that. All right, we're not supposed to talk politics too much. But Disa, yeah. what does leadership mean to you? It means self-sacrifice. It means, you, you know, going out of your way, literally bending over backwards all the time. It means thinking beyond yourself all the time, reminding yourself, constantly, you know, that this is not about me. It means skills. It means you have to sharpen your own skills. It means being vigilant. It means constantly, you know, remembering why you do what you do, focusing on the goal all the time. And the big part of it is actually being able to bring other people along with you. Often, uh, against their own will, <laughs> because <laughs> because you know we 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 may all say we want something, but it's very difficult. There are very few people who are able to remember why they chose the path that they chose, especially in sort of the line of work we do. But leadership is really um, also the ability to 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 do something when no one else believes in it. That, you know, also it also just simply means not, you know, like I said, being, you know, so self-absorbed. It's, mm. it's about everybody else. It's always about a bigger goal. It's about other people. It's about development. It's about giving more than you are even expected to give. And it's just about motivating others and also being able to develop others and being able to show others that they can actually do something to it. Unfortunately, you cannot lead yourself. You cannot lead something that has nothing to do with others. So you're always leading mm. something that has to do with actually everybody else and the ability to be able to motivate. And I would imagine also inspire to some extent, but being able to motivate people to see that they can do something themselves because, you know, the crux of leadership is being able to create you know, an environment where other people can also thrive. So creating other leaders. And for you to be able to create that environment, you have to, you know, you you have to firstly lead by example, set the tone, etc. Do the work, put in the effort, so that others can be inspired and motivated to to try to either emulate you or even better to do more Mm. and do better than you. Because remember, whatever goal or vision or mission, whatever it is that you say you are, leading for, that goal has to be ultimately reached 
not by you alone, but by others. I like that. I've worked with bad managers, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I, want to, I want to talk about the pivots that you did. You, were, I mean, you were a successful uh, brand communications, treaty marketing management, public relations, all that kind of thing. You were very good at that. Why? I mean, it's it's, it's difficult. At uh, I don't want to denigrate your age or anything, but it's difficult when you're older to make that kind of pivot to do one thing and be good at it, and then decide I'm going to go do something completely different. Why did you do that? I think I'd always been an activist. Right. <laughs> Even in um, the work environment. Um, I, I spent many years in corporate, like many of us in South Africa, very dependent on, you know, private sector jobs. And I also came from uh, two parents who, who had worked in uh, the private sector, um, albeit, you know, blue-collar work. Uh, and I think my, my father was in a clerical position for a company called Bascock, and my mother worked for um, these called ShopRite. Mm. At the time, they were okay bazaars. And, yeah, she, and they both spent over 40 years in their workplaces. So when you grow up uh, with two parents who are, and they were complete workaholics, they were committed to, you know, their work and raising, you know, their family. And you, you, you sort of also gravitate in those cases towards what your parents sort of taught you. Um, but... I, I, suppose, I suppose also being a female in South Africa, being mm-hmm. a girl, being black, uh, having grown up in rural and township areas. Um, yeah, maybe some may say I was lucky to have gone to, you know, boarding schools. I'm not sure if boarding school is actually a good thing. I ended up sending <laughs> my daughter to a boarding school, by the way. <laughs> but for me, as an activist, um, Having even gone into a formal uh, corporate environment, didn't I, I didn't I didn't draw a line between my activism and my corporate career. Yeah. One because I'm a black black female, right? And uh, I started working at a very early age. I mean, I even had holiday jobs when I was still in school because my parents insisted, and also we needed the money. Yeah. But um, I didn't draw a line between my my role in any corporate entity in South Africa that I worked in, as well as my activism, simply because I understood the linkages between, you know, the politics of my life and the politics of my work and the politics of me being a black female, you know, in, in, the, in the context of my progress as a human being. And I understood the struggles that interlinked those three. And, mm-hmm. the, and I understood that if I ignored, if I saw, if I separated, if I extracted the struggles, right, or extracted the politics and put them one side and said, no, 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 these struggles have nothing to do with this environment, that I was actually out of the thing I was going to go here. And besides, I, mean, I was just taught <laughs> from home that um, when you see an injustice, go for it. Often it would be to my detriment because I always fought with my bosses. But it made it difficult for them to get rid of me because I was, you know, sort of always a super achiever. I mean, I was very difficult to get rid of when it came to, (laughs) you know, productivity. I was always at the top of the ranks, you know. So I didn't struggle to get on, Mm. get promotions, etc. because I was just simply such a hard worker. And of course, I always put in an extra effort. But it wasn't a difficult transition. And there was a time I remember in my 20s 
when, uh, because even from school, you see, I was always either in some or other leadership role, etc. Mm-hmm. But I, I told myself that at some point, because politics was always sort of, maybe not politics, but you know, there's certain passions I have, like the environment, community development. I would, you know, very um, ad hoc, I'd take an ad hoc project to do some kind of community development work on my own without joining an NGO or some kind of civic organization. And of course, I participated in political work on the sidelines as a hobby outside of my work. But um, I I always say to myself, look, I mean, I think politics is an option for me. I knew it from a very early age. But I observed, even internationally, and of course, some of my favorite uh, activists are pan-Africanists, you know, revolutionaries. Um, locally in South Africa and, of course, in the diaspora, as well, um, you know, in the continent. But I would always observe all the most sort of, uh, uh, you know, the luminaries in the space. And one thing I picked up from all of them, whether you went back to Charlotte Matlake, you went back to Nzinga, uh, you went back to Wangari Matai, Winnie Mandela, um, you went back to Harriet Tubman, any generation, any era, luminaries in the space of, you know, revolutionaries, the most outstanding revolutionaries in the Pan-Africanist space, always had their own career. They always had, you know, something else that uh, they did, and mm-hmm. they worked, or even other passions that you didn't know about. They actually, some of them ended up in the political space by sheer accident. Nelson Mandela mm. wasn't planning to be a politician, <laughs> was dragged into it, kicking and screaming by um, Walter Sisulu. And, you know, he was a lawyer, you know, and that was that's the trade he was pursuing. And Mandela yeah. was a social worker. Yeah. Wangari Matai was a professor and an academic. And so I believed that you needed firstly to have value in and of yourself. You needed to have other skills, you needed to have other capabilities before you could come into this space because this space does require a lot out of you. Information, knowledge, etc., etc., is important. Otherwise, you know, I didn't think that you could really add that much value. So the transition wasn't at all that impossible for me because um, even if I had been, let's say, a medical doctor according to my parents' wishes, um, there was, would have been absolutely nothing stopping me because in every field of life, in any event, we need activists who specialize in that uh, area. I think what counted in my favor was that in my space, uh, the science of communication and politics are very much intertwined and interlinked. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just have to tell you, that was the best politician answer I've ever heard in a long time. I, asked you, I think it was a five-minute answer to a short question. No, I'm kidding. You're just having some fun. Um, obviously, you, you mentioned Winnie Mandela. Uh, there's a, what was this? This is a story from, uh, I'm not sure where, written by Samaya Stockenstrom about how your yeah. dad used to teach you about Winnie Mandela and then she came to visit you at, or, or to came to your area at one point. Tell us about that story. My dad, um, I think from as early as the age of five that I can remember, um, my father was or my father was an activist, and so we, I think his favorite favorite activist must have been Winnie Mandela because he spoke about her all the time. And I remembered from as early as five, my father constantly talking about Winnie Mandela. And in the eighties, when we grew up, and I think many people can relate to what I'm saying, we all looked forward to 
Winnie Mandela. In fact, the other figure that we look forward to was Brenda Farsi, right? So <laughs> these were the two people that if, if they were coming to your uh, neck of the woods in South Africa, and, you know, I grew up between North Street and Whitbank, and at the time, uh, you know, um, we would commute between the two until eventually my parents took us to live with them full time in Whitbank. But the first time, I, I didn't actually get to see her physically. But the convoy of cars I mm. saw, because obviously I was little and all of that, so I always had to depend on somebody putting me on their shoulders, etc. And it was not even, uh, it's not like a, it wasn't an activity that my, my mother would have even approved about, so I ended up with a cousin of mine. But um, somewhere in my teens, if not early teens, yeah, um, is when I actually eventually got to experience that phenomenon, because William Mandela was a phenomenon and remains a phenomenon. When she came to our township, um, and of course there would always be one reason or the other. So obviously because the, the, her work was banned, so to speak, yeah. so she would obviously do her activism through very creative means. And that's the one thing about Mamuni uh, uh, Mandela that I always found. Even now, I find it I, 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 I find it amazing that people don't, you know, academics don't choose her as a subject of study, because banned as her organization was. I mean, she managed to do so much, precisely what I was saying earlier, sometimes probably under the banner of her social work uh, that she had to do. Mm-hmm. But she would come to the township, um, obviously to attend to the underground political work that we'd see, and of course, every time she came, afterwards there would be some massive boycotts and all of that, because, you know, there was that ruling that action that was, I think, at the time coordinated between Kota 2 and the... Uh, uh, UDF and all of that. But my cousins were also very active underground uh, in the township and all of that. And so I would always go with them. But the first time I actually um, got to see her, and I said that in inverted commas, because I didn't physically see her, but I was in, you know, uh, she was addressing at, um, uh, it was um, like a stadium in the township in Wipang. And it was absolute mayhem. I mean, the township came to a standstill. You would get wind of, of the information that, you know, Winnie Mandela is coming, Winnie Mandela is coming. It was like maybe Jesus is coming. That <laughs> was the impact that it had. And the level of excitement was just euphoric. I mean, you, you, you couldn't, I mean, even as a kid, and as it was for me, because my father, you know, I held him in such high regard. We had no boys at home, so I suppose I became the boy because I was a bit of a tomboy. Mm. Um, and, and my father, you know, was so upset with his figurehead. I had to also see her, and I had to understand, you know, what is this thing about William Mandela all about? And my cousins, of course, being so active in the street committees and all sorts of other activities mm-hmm. in the township, um, of course, I eventually got to learn about who William Mandela was and all that. But, I mean, she was a much larger than life figure yeah. to me. Even when I eventually moved to Johannesburg, my one ultimate wish, I mean, I joined even that party, but I never got to meet her, and it was the one thing I always wanted to yeah. to do. And <laughs> because she was just like somebody who did, was surreal to me. Did you meet her I eventually? Met, I met her not directly, but I eventually I, I, I attended. Uh, I think it was the first, no, no. When I was still in the UK, I, I remember going to. I mean, the closest I'd come to her was basically, you know, at rallies and all of that. But I, you know, whenever I had an opportunity to physically talk to her, like to talk to her at close range yeah. or have a conversation with her, I'd always feel 
a bit inadequate. Yeah, they say low self-esteem issue. They say you should <laughs> never you should never meet your hero. I know. Is it? Oh, is there a thing like that? I don't even know. It's uh, true because I uh, couldn't do it. I couldn't even talk to her. I, I mean, it's not even like. It's, it's not a close analogy, but there's a Top Gear presenter who met Evil Knievel, who was always his hero. But then he really? met Evil Knievel, and he was so disappointed. Because you, <laughs> you realize that this person that you've made out, I mean, you refer to her as like, it's like, you know, like Jesus coming. Yeah, like you, a you, demigod. Yeah, and then you realize that actually, you know, they put their pants on one leg at a time as well. <laughs> it's, no, what me was in that situation, I think I felt inadequate. Okay. I, I only Makes got sense. nervous every time I had to talk to her. I know my, my sister met um, uh, uh, the former president, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. She was a nurse, and he was doing a walkabout in, uh, at, the, at the time it was called Johannesburg General Hospital. She was training there, and he came to the walkabout, and he came to her ward. And she was a student nurse, yeah. and he shook her hand. And, I mean, obviously, you know what happens. We never got to hear the end of it. <laughs> she couldn't watch. She couldn't speak for days and all of that. So for me, it was, it was like that. I felt inadequate. I felt nervous. I, I didn't know what would I say to him. And the next time I met her was at um, uh, the the week graduation. But I, still, I didn't meet her. Everybody was clamoring to go forward and greet her and all of that. And I just remained in the background, like, uh, you mm. know, nervous little wreck. And I, I, and everybody was like, hey, well, but why are you not going to greet her? I was like, I'm waiting for the queue to, to die down. Yeah. But I was just making excuses. <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was going to say to her, ultimately. But Lisa, <laughs> I was nervous. We need, to, we need to wrap it up. We've only got a couple of minutes left. So what are you currently working on, and how do people get hold of you if they want to find out more about what you do? People can just Google and listen to It looks like anybody and everybody can get hold of you. I'm even tired of telling people, call this one first, start with, the, you know, the, you've got procedures, call somebody at Brunson. And, and even if you give them all those numbers, they just simply Still won't do it for yep. whatever reason. So my phone number is Googleable. I'm on Twitter wow. as Mandy Samashoho. I'm on Facebook as Mandy Samashoho. Um, so they can inbox me. Apparently, my Twitter DM thing is not working. I don't know, but it's one relief. I can I can gladly say I enjoy. Um, I'm on email. I'm on my cell phone. Um, I'm supposed to be on Instagram, but I've kind of like held back because you know social media takes up too much of your time. Yeah. And um, of course, if uh, they really really can't find me, they can always phone the legislature and uh, you know go through to my office in midweek. I prefer not to get calls in the middle of the night, but I do get them. This is one such call. Um, <laughs> it's and, not. Um, it's early morning. <laughs> like I said, I'm working on completing this MBA, however long it takes me, sure. even if it kills me. Um, I'm also working on getting my health back in check because I've had a couple of, uh, you know, health concerns, but mm. it's nothing life-threatening. I just need to get my fitness back in. Yeah, and I think my next goal is to start road running again, even if it means I do two kilometers per hour. Got to start somewhere. Mandisa, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much, John. Thank Man- you very much. Mandisa Masheho is the EFF Gauteng chairperson, also party leader in the Gauteng legislature. Just a couple of quick WhatsApp messages on our question of the day. How crucial is it having young people in parliament? Uh, Nazim says it's crucial because they will address the issues that we are that the, we as youth are facing in our country. And Donald says it's something we must celebrate. These young souls will represent majority of the youth in the country. It reminds me of my Zimbabwean president, Nelson Chamisa, the youngest member of parliament a bundle of years ago. Thank you very much for joining us. Back again tomorrow morning. Thanks to the producer Tabello and Zalma for pushing the buttons. Nomsa's up with the news next. Then first take with Elvis Presley.